The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. They have uh, nothing as it relates to a case other than, I guess, an overzealous attorney general who would destroy all of New York business by going after transactions where there are no victims. Donald Trump's legal team kicked off its defense in New York State's civil fraud trial with a return appearance by his eldest son, Don Jr., who raved about his family's real estate assets and called his father an artist with real estate. For six weeks, New York Attorney General Letitia James has presented her case alleging that the former president inflated the value of his assets by billions of dollars for more than a decade to do banks and insurers into giving him better terms. Though Donald Trump Jr. was relaxed on the stand and joke with the judge, unlike his father, his testimony did echo his father's, illustrating a central defense argument that the Trump properties are extremely valuable and the company's annual financial statements, if anything, underrated them. And outside the courthouse, there was the familiar no harm, no foul refrain. Uh, but you guys have got to think about the precedent that this case sets. If an attorney general can years later, after all parties of transactions are paid back in full with interest, making hundreds of millions of dollars where they have no complaint, where they said they wouldn't have done anything differently, where every witness, as it relates to my brother and I, every witness that the attorney general has called have said that my brother and I were not involved in the statement of financial condition. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. So, Bob, Don Jr. waxed poetic about his father's genius for real estate and the family's real estate holdings. Why did the defense recall him? I think Donald Trump Jr. was attempting to present a more relaxed, less contentious approach to the judge in their defense case in chief. And what the judge allowed him to do was to really paint a picture, literally, of the Trump organization. They showed glossy magazine-type images of the interiors and exteriors of various Trump properties around the world. And the judge even went so far over the objections of the state AG's office to allow Donald Trump Jr. to give a history of the Trump family going back to the 1900s to talk about how his great-grandfather had made a fortune during the Klondike Gold Rush and his grandfather had developed apartments in Brooklyn and Queens. And really, from the Trump defense standpoint, trying to set the stage for just how the Trump organization began decades ago and where it was today, and ultimately bringing the case up to today's time and pointing out that his father was really a visionary, somebody who saw where the real estate market was going in Manhattan long before others could see it. And underlying all of that was really an attempt to try to convince the judge or perhaps the public that Donald Trump is being misunderstood and being unfairly treated here because he is more of a visionary 
than he is a businessman in the sense that he is not someone who gets down to the nuts and bolts of the financial filings. He is more of a so-called big picture person who is able to identify real estate trends before anybody else and to develop them for great financial gain. So the attorney general alleges that Trump's Los Angeles golf course was overvalued by almost $50 million. Donald Trump Jr. focused on the beauty of the course and the views of the Pacific. But then the state lawyer said, didn't the 18th hole fall into the ocean? The thing is, the Trumps say that valuations are subjective, but they're subjective and, you know, a little puffery. And then there's wildly unconnected to reality. Well, you're right. The heart of the attorney general's lawsuit are documents known as statements of financial conditions, which are the balance sheet that the Trump organization used to demonstrate the value of its properties and Mr. Trump's net worth so they could obtain loans and insurance rates. And essentially what the AG's office has alleged here is that the Trump organization inflated the value of the Trump properties in order to dupe banks and insurers into giving them better terms, reaping a $250 million gain in illegal profit, according to the AG's office. The heart of the Trump Organization's defense is that these financial statements contain a disclaimer that essentially says they're entirely worthless and that no bank should rely upon them. And part of what's gone on over and over again during the course of this case, this has been argued multiple times to this judge, and that actually has gone up on appeal twice, and the judge has been affirmed, but the defense over and over again is saying that these financial statements cannot be relied upon. They were dealing with a sophisticated bank in Deutsche Bank, and Deutsche Bank did its own due diligence rather than relied upon these financial statements in making decisions about whether or not to extend loans to the Trump organization. And Trump keeps talking about both inside the courtroom and outside the courtroom, that disclaimer. He sort of presents it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. The judge, as you say, has rejected the disclaimer argument over and over. Why do you think the defense keeps raising it? Do you think it's more for the public than for the judge? He said at one point it's worthless. The disclaimer defense, which is really at the heart of the defense strategy here, is being played not only to the court and ultimately on appeal, because that's where this case is headed, but also to the court of public opinion. And essentially what the Trump defense argues is that this is a case with no victims and no injury. They point out that Deutsche Bank was a sophisticated lender. They are apparently going to put on Deutsche Bank witnesses who will testify as to how eager they were to lend money to the Trump organization. They will point out that Deutsche Bank made millions of dollars from the loans that they made to the Trump organization, that the Trump organization never defaulted on any of these loans, never had any late payments. And ultimately, the question here is whether or not there is a victim, whether or not anybody was harmed, or whether this was simply business as usual in the real estate industry. That's a contention that this judge has already rejected, but it will be an issue that will go up on appeal at the end of this case. 
Central to the AG's case are the statements of financial condition that Trump had his accountants send to lenders that detail his assets and their values. And the state of New York alleges he inflated his net worth by as much as $3.6 billion a year to get better terms on loans and insurance. So now, when Trump was on the stand, he acknowledged he had a hand in preparing the financial statements. And Ivanka Trump, said that that was her father's signature on the financial statements. Eric Trump said they were accurate, even though the judge determined that they were fraudulent. So the AG has that part of her case sewn up. Yeah, I think one of the problems with the defense case is that it's a bit of a circular argument on this point. What the Trump organization has argued is that it relied on the professional advice of its accountants who prepared those financial statements and signed those statements uh, in reliance on the accountants submitting the information to them. When the accountants took the stand, they said that they prepared the statements based on information they got from the Trump organization. And so it, it is, as I said, a bit of a circular argument here where the accountants are saying, we did prepare those statements and present them to the upper management of the Trump organization, the Trump organization executives, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump and former President Trump all say they relied on the professional advice of those accountants, but then the accountants testified during the trial that they created those financial statements based on information that came from the Trump organization. So at the end of the day, it's hard to see here how this judge will not hold the Trump executives responsible for making sure that the information in those documents was materially accurate. And while there could be errors in those documents, to some extent, the significance of those errors and the pervasiveness of them over the years is something that I think the judge will take into account ultimately in rendering a decision in this case. And the judge has already found that fraud was committed. So now the only issues that are left are a couple of claims which go to whether or not there was intentional fraud. And then ultimately, what are the penalties that will be imposed by the court, which could include a fine of up to $250 million, could include barring former President Trump and his sons and the Trump Organization from operating in the state of New York. So the stakes are enormously high. But at this point, the trial is all about the penalties, essentially not about the liability phase. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, I'll continue this conversation with former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz. Does the defense have its eye on an appeal rather than the judge's decision here? I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This week, Donald Trump's legal team kicked off its defense in New York State's civil fraud trial. I've been talking to former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz. So when Donald Trump was on the stand, it was a wild day in the courtroom. I've never heard of a defendant or anyone being on the stand and and acting that way toward the judge. You know, he would say things like, this judge is not going to give me a good ruling. This judge is against me. And he would ramble and yes or no questions. He wouldn't answer with a yes or no. And the judge asked the Trump attorneys to try to get their client in line. It appears that the defense is going to recall Donald Trump in its case. What do you think the point of that would be? Well, I think in bringing former president back to the stand during the defense case, it gives the defense an opportunity to present a more coherent and thematic defense through the eyes of former President Trump. It will allow them to basically present a scripted and rehearsed presentation where former President Trump will be permitted on direct to basically answer the questions that his own lawyers are presenting to him and present, I think, a much less contentious view of this case and paint a picture for the public and, to some extent, the judge of exactly what his role was in this organization. And essentially, I think at the heart of the defense is that when you run an organization like the Trump Organization with as many financial statements and complicated financial deals involving real estate all over the world, he cannot be expected to know the intricacies of all these statements, and he has testified that he has made suggestions about the valuations of various properties, but the Trump defense is that they were just that, suggestions, and ultimately he relied on his accountants to give him accurate information. So not only did Trump sort of egg the judge on when he was testifying, and he's egged him on by saying things you know, in violation of the gag order about his staff. But it seems like the attorneys also, but his attorneys have also been very contentious and argumentative with the judge. So it appears that they're making this into an issue for appeal. But what does a judge have to do for an appellate court to reverse a decision of his? I mean, how bad does it have to get in the courtroom? One of the things you're hearing a lot out of the Trump defense team and from former President Trump himself is that this judge is biased. And what it really calls into question is if the judge simply rules against you based on the evidence that he hears at trial, that does not make him biased. The bias comes in if the defense can demonstrate that this judge had prejudged this case, that this judge had made other statements relating to former President Trump or to the Trump Organization prior to this case beginning, or that the judge was considering evidence outside of what was presented at court in rendering his decision. So I think what we're seeing here as part of the defense strategy is that they have already reached the conclusion that they are likely to lose not only on the 
liability phase, which has already happened, but they're also going to be hit with some very severe penalties at the end of this case from this judge. And they're already looking beyond the trial court to the appeals court, trying to lay the groundwork for a successful appeal. And part of a successful appeal sometimes is to try to goad the judge into doing something that the court of appeals will decide is reversible error, that the judge will say something that he shouldn't have said or make a decision that he shouldn't have made or make some kind of impertinent comment that creates an air of bias. And then ultimately that can be used to try to reverse the results of the case when ultimately this judge renders his decision. So when former President Trump was in the courthouse, he would hold these, I call them mini press conferences outside the courtroom, talking about how unfair the case was, talking about, you know, the disclaimers, et cetera, et cetera. And also the attorney general, Letitia James, would go outside and give a statement to the media. This is another thing that stands out. These statements in the middle of the trial as very different from most cases. This is clearly a case that we've really never seen before. The rules that you typically see enforced in any courtroom in this country have really been relaxed in this case. The general proposition that underlies any case, whether it be civil or criminal in this country, is that the litigants are to litigate their case in the courtroom, that statements are to be made in the courtroom, that the record is created in the courtroom, and the judge will typically draw a pretty bright line on that and not allow defense lawyers or defendants or prosecutors to try their case in the court of public opinion. So it is very unusual to see these statements being made by defense lawyers and prosecutors and the defendants themselves making these statements during the course of the trial. But again, this is an unusual case with unusual issues and unusual parties. And so I think we're seeing a case that is being tried in a way that we've never really seen before. And what the judge is trying to do here, I think, is to try to make a decision that ultimately will stand up on appeal, whatever he ultimately decides, and not give the defense grounds to try to reverse, ultimately, the decision in this case. If one of Trump's criminal trials goes forward while he's still campaigning for the presidency, Will the trial judge be able to control him, at least in the courtroom, especially because there'll be a jury present, unlike this case? Yeah, you raise a good point, and every judge is different. Every judge is given a certain amount of latitude as to how they want to run their courtroom. And so some judges will let defense lawyers get away with a lot more than other judges. Again, the eye is always towards doing it in a way that's fair, And that does not unduly hamper the defense or the prosecution in a way that creates an issue on appeal. But the focus is always more on the defense than the prosecution for purposes of appeal. And so I think in this case, we're seeing this judge give former President Trump on the defense team wide latitude to tell their side of the story and even give sort of an infomercial about the Trump organization during the course of the trial. In the criminal trials, other judges may decide to handle the case differently and to try to draw brighter lines and enforce rules more rigorously in terms of what they're going to allow defense lawyers and defendants to say outside of the courtroom. One of the challenges for any of the judges handling the upcoming criminal trials in terms of setting rules and limiting the statements that could be made outside of the courtroom is that a judge can only enforce those rules 
ultimately, by holding a witness in contempt, that means fining the witness or potentially jailing the witness if a defendant directly violates a judge's ruling on a repeated basis. The challenge here for these judges is that while they may impose fines, putting former President Trump in jail during the pendency of a trial is going to be extremely difficult for them to do. And so ultimately, one of the tools in the arsenal of judges in order to try to rein in what may be perceived as an unruly defendant is likely not available to them during these trials. So I think we're going to see judges trying to walk a very fine line, trying to make sure that they don't let their courtroom get out of control. That's something that every judge is very mindful of. They are the ones who control their courtroom, and you don't want to have a prosecutor or a defense lawyer or a defendant run amok in your courtroom. Remember, these will be jury trials, unlike the trial that's going on in in New York now with the AG's office. And so how a judge handles his or her courtroom in front of those jurors is going to be critical. The judge is the final word on all of the legal rulings. And in order to show command of the courtroom, a judge has to control the defense, has to control the prosecutors, has to control the defendants. It's going to be very interesting to see how each of these judges handle that challenge. And a challenge it will be. Thanks so much, Bob. That's Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show... Robocalls targeting voters with misinformation may turn out to be legal in Michigan. I'm June Gross, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Mail-in voting sounds great, but did you know that if you vote by mail, your personal information will be part of a public database that will be used by police departments to track down old warrants and be used by credit card companies to collect outstanding debt? About 12,000 residents of Detroit got that robocall in 2020 falsely claiming that police, creditors, and the CDC could use mail-in voting data to issue warrants, collect on debts, and push mandatory vaccines. It was part of a campaign of misinformation by Republican operatives Jack Berkman and Jacob Wall to deter black Detroiters from voting in the 2020 presidential election. 
The Michigan Attorney General filed charges against them, including felony voter intimidation. But Berkman and Wall are asking the Michigan Supreme Court to toss those charges, claiming the U.S. Constitution gives them the right to put out those misleading robocalls. Joining me is First Amendment expert Eugene Volick, a professor at UCLA Law School. Is this conflict the role of the state to protect voters from intimidation and the Constitution's protections for speech, political speech. Is this at the heart of a lot of U.S. election laws? Depends what you mean by intimidation. So there's no doubt that trying to intimidate voters by threatening violence against them is a crime, and there's no First Amendment defense for threats of violence. On the other hand, Uh, Courts have generally been quite skeptical, especially in recent years, of attempts to police false statements in election campaigns. So there have been laws that ban knowingly false statements in election campaigns, outright lies, and the courts still have struck down those laws, chiefly because they basically put too much power in the government's hands to decide what is true and what is false in an election campaign, with too much risk of kind of political enforcement. And part of the problem with the law in this case is that, at least in the government's understanding of it, it applies to basically trying to get people not to vote or to vote differently through either possibly misleading statements about possible risks to them, or perhaps times the government suggests any statements that essentially use fear in order to change people's votes. That's a very broad category, especially given that the statute here talks about attempt by means of menace or other corrupt means or device to influence an elector's vote. So it looks like under the government's theory, if there was a message sent out uh, saying, if you vote for Trump, he's going to uh, send your children off to some war, let's say. That's an attempt to use fear. It's possibly an attempt to use misleading statements. He's going to do that. How do we know he's going to do that? So generally speaking, most courts would say that's not something you can police for, that the government can police for in elections. And yet under the the state's theory in this case, it's possible that the law is as broad as that. During the oral arguments, the Michigan Deputy Solicitor General said the law only prohibits false statements about the voting process, the procedures of voting, and not those that impact which candidates get support. So you think that the law is much broader than that? Well, let's look at what the statute says. It says a person shall not attempt by means of bribery, that's not an issue here, menace or other corrupt means or device either directly or indirectly, to influence an elector, that means voter, in giving his or her vote, or to deter the elector from or interrupt the elector in giving his or her vote at any election held in this state. Nothing there says this only has to do with false statements about the mechanics of voting, or in this case about the dangers of voting, such as uh, claims that if you vote by mail, the government will do bad things to you. There's no limitation there to these statements about mechanics of voting. It covers any state that seeks either directly or indirectly to influence an elector in giving his or her vote. So that is to say in perhaps voting for one side rather than another side. If the statute were limited to false statements about the mechanics of voting, in the sense of false statements that about where to go or when to go or the exact mechanisms for voting, 
I do think that would be constitutional, precisely because it would be very narrow. But there is no such limitation in the statute. And of course, in this particular case, the statements weren't about how to vote. The statements were claims that if you vote by mail, then the government will have all this information about you that it will misuse. That's, uh, that's moving away from statements about the mechanics of voting and moving to statements about alleged possible government misconduct in the future. But in any event, courts generally read statutes as they are written. Sometimes they impose narrowing constructions that are justified by the text. But here, the text doesn't seem to have anything in it like the limitation on to the mechanics of voting to, that the state government was urging. And so some of the things the justices questioned, one justice questioned Justice Welch, what about the scenario of the millions of mailers we get? What if someone says, don't vote, they're all crooks? And another justice, David Viviano, wondered whether the statute could be used to charge someone like Trump over his frequent statements that the absentee voting process is rigged. So does it seem like the justices were keying into what you just said? Right. I think the justices are worried that the statute on its face is very broad. And indeed, claims don't vote by absentee, the absentee process is rigged. Under the government's theory, they may not be menacing in the sense that they don't have uh, the element of possible threat that the government will do something to you. But under the government's theory, that would be a corrupt means or device because it would be misleading or outright false. So I think the justices are recognizing that this statute is written quite broadly. It may well be that a narrower statute would be constitutional. It may well be that there is a narrower statute that would be both constitutional and broad enough to cover the speech of these particular defendants. But I'm not sure that this statute is one such. I think the statute could be read quite narrowly as saying menace is threat of violence and corrupt means or device is something like versions of bribery or extortion or some such. If it's read that narrowly, then there wouldn't be a constitutional problem with it, but also at the same time the defendants wouldn't be covered by the statute. But if corrupt means includes misleading statements and menace means kind of indirect threat that one day the the government might do something bad to you if you vote or if you vote a particular way, then it becomes really potentially very broad and probably unconstitutionally overbroad. So I want to get your take on Judge Richard Bernstein, who seemed to be one of the justices who was promoting the state side, said basically the whole idea here was that the goal, what they did, was to interfere and cause confusion about the process and procedure. And that means all the attorney general is basically arguing is that you can say whatever you want, if you want, the way you want. But if you knowingly engage in a process that endangers the integrity of the voting procedure— that's different. That's the question. Well, it's hard to evaluate that without knowing what uh, endangers the integrity of the voting procedure means. It's not part of the statute. But if you want to engraft that limitation, the question is, how much of a limitation is it? For example, some people do argue that any attempts to mislead the voters, and especially to lie to voters, uh, not just about, uh, uh, about what happens if you vote by mail, but also what happens if some candidate is elected or something like that, uh, would be an interference with the integrity of elections. Uh, that's the basis for a lot of these laws that try to ban lies in election campaigns, and the courts have generally struck them down. Now, again, if this has to do with just information about the mechanics of voting, 
that you can interfere with the integrity of the voting process by saying to people, oh, you need to vote, you can vote until 10 in the evening, whereas it turns out that the polls, and you know this, that the polls close at 7, that, again, would be a narrow enough statute. I just don't see that limitation in the text of the statute. And what's more, that may be too narrow to get these defendants convicted. On the other hand, if you're saying, well, under the statute, you can't mislead people into thinking that the government might misuse information about your voting, but it's okay to mislead people into thinking that if you elect some candidate, he will do some bad things, things that may not even be constitutionally empowered to do, then that's a strange distinction that doesn't seem to be covered on the text of the statute. Note again, the statute doesn't just talk about attempts to keep people from voting. It also equally prohibits attempts to influence an elector in giving his or her vote. So that, that includes attempts to just get people to vote for one candidate rather than another. Those seem to have little to do with that distinction that the justice suggested. So a similar prohibition on bribery, intimidation, and corrupt interference with voting has existed in New York since before the country's founding. So is it likely that the New York law is not as broad as the Michigan law? Yeah, I'm sorry. I can't speak to the New York law just because I haven't read it. Uh, But again, there's nothing odd about the government saying you can't attempt by means of bribery, menace, or corrupt means or device to do things. Bribery is in general a crime. There's no First Amendment problem. Menace, if read to mean true threats of illegal conduct, is also punishable. There's an exception to the First Amendment. And again, corrupt means or device. If you think of corruption the way we normally think of corruption, such as bribery or possibly extortion and the like, there's no problem punishing that. The question is how broadly those terms are read. If they're read, for example, if corrupt means or device is read to include false or misleading statements, in this case, misleading predictions about what the government will do, will supposedly do, that makes the statute much broader. So you could imagine exactly the same statute in a different state that there's no constitutional problem with because it's been read very narrowly. I can't speak to whether New York is like that, but the problem here isn't just with the text of the statute. It's a combination of the text of the statute with the way that the government is broadly interpreting it. Are there a lot of challenges to laws against robocalls? Well, um, you know, a lot depends on the particular law. First of all, to, to my knowledge, in the political context, there's not a vast number of such, although there probably are some. But uh, when you we talk about laws against robocalls, we have to distinguish what kind of laws they are. So, for example, there are certainly calls that uh, limit commercial unwanted phone calls. Or you can imagine a content-neutral law that says, that you can't call people who are on the do not call list. Not much of a problem, generally speaking. It may restrict your speech, but nobody has a right to press their ideas on an unwilling listener in that kind of way. This law is not actually a law that's about robocalls. It's not limited to robocalls. It says nothing about that. Rather, it is a law that, as the government is interpreting it, is prohibiting speech with, that conveys certain messages, messages that the government views as misleading. That does raise more of an issue, and again, it makes it a lot more like those 
laws that I uh, mentioned earlier in various states that ban not just misleading, but knowingly false statements in election campaigns that have been challenged and have been struck down as giving the government too much power to affect elections by claiming certain kinds of statements are false. I hope you'll come back when we find out how the Michigan Supreme Court rules in this case. Thanks so much, Eugene. That's Professor Eugene Volokh of UCLA Law School. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.